Stephen, a very warm welcome. Thanks, Colin. Good to be here and uh, looking forward to the chat. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. I think it should be a lot of fun because when I started researching uh, this idea about the future of mobile finance, I thought it was going to be such an obvious answer and we would have nothing to talk about after the first 10 minutes. But having had a deeper look into it and chatted to some colleagues in different industries, uh, I actually think it's going to be fascinating. But we're, we're going to get onto that in a, in a wee bit. The first probably thing I should do is introduce you for anyone that actually doesn't know, which I would find absolutely remarkable if that's the case. But we're really, really pleased that you've joined this call, Stephen, because of your experiences now and over the last decade or so, starting with ABSA CIB, where you were the CEO in the banking industry, moving across into MTN, Vice President Digital Services and Data Analytics, and previously to that, involved in the strategy and mergers and acquisitions team. And obviously now you've gone across and been group CEO for EOH for, what is it now, two, two and a half years? Two and a half years. So let's open with a question on that. After such prestigious roles at MTN and ABSA doing so well, why on earth did you then decide to leave MTN and, and jump across to EOH? And obviously, a lot of people on the call have been following the news flow over the last couple of years. Why did you do that? I suppose in life, you want some challenges. Otherwise, you get bored. I didn't realize clearly that there was that level of corruption. I knew that uh, they'd done a lot of acquisitions over time. And uh, basically, they had asked me to come in as a professional manager and consolidate the strategy, consolidate the business, and take it on its you know next journey. As you know, there were like 272 legal entities that they had uh, acquired, and they, re they really needed to be some consolidation. I've always liked the ICT um, industry. I think my time at MTN and what we had done digitizing uh, APSA CRB or Barclays Africa CRB at that time was, um, you know, quite instrumental. Having sat on the other side of the fence, now being able to go and be part of the um, services. What um, really attracted me, though, was at that time, our president was, to, you know, very focused on creating jobs in the ICT industry. And obviously, having been uh, a beneficiary of, you know, the previous 25 years of of my career, I was always looking to give something back was one of the reasons why I went to MTN and grew their mobile money business, you know, focused on that, trying to create financial and social inclusion. And I just thought going to EOH, they had and still have a great upskilling or job creation in the ICT, um, you know, world. They've done over 12,000 jobs. And um, I really thought I could, you know, help a lot with that and get involved in it. And you know, give something back while I was sorting out the business. As it turned out, it was a little bit different, but uh, we're coming out the other side now and um, I'm starting to be able to do what I actually came to do and let's, you know, grow the business and uh, consolidate it into a proper strategy that can, you know, help South Africa and, you know, other parts of the continent actually grow into this digital age, which has really been accelerated by COVID. Yeah. How would you define mobile finance? Because it's, it's uh, I think everyone sees it in, in kind of one way, but it's actually, I think, a very broad topic. Yeah, I think the utopia is, is that you're looking for something that's better than cash. And uh, if you can get that right, then you've won and you can create frictionless, you know, money. The issue with cash at the moment is one is it's very insecure. You know, someone can steal it out of your wallet or your pocket uh, whereas mobile you know, money or digital money, they can't, or it's very, very difficult to do with the new technology. 
The second thing also is there's there's lots of intermediary. I mean, there was a study done by Deloitte and um, a MasterCard, I think in 2017 or 18, somewhere around there, called The Future of Payments. And they worked out that in South Africa, the cost of cash is around 23 billion rand a year or, you know, over half a percent of GDP running. And that's really carried by the lowest cost. It's a very expensive, you know, mechanism. The, the second thing is also that the banking sector excludes a lot of people. You know, they say in South Africa, you know, 80% of South Africans are banked. But the, actually, when you have a look at the, the studies done by Finmark, you know, about 40% of those are dormant accounts or mailboxes, and about 90% of informal enterprises only use cash. And the real reason is, is, you know, we are very much a card society. And you know, if you send money from one bank to another bank, it can take 24, sometimes 48 hours to appear somewhere. So if you think about a farmer, rural farmer comes in and gets paid, uh, you know, brings his cabbages, gets paid at the market, he actually can't buy anything and go home because he has to wait 24 hours or 48 hours for that money to land in his account unless he's creditworthy enough to get a credit card or something that he can get settlement. So we've, we've got this friction that sits in the, in the payment system. And so really when I think about mobile money is that can we make it better than cash? Can we make it digital? And there's no reason why you can't. If you think about a 10 rand note, it's got a piece of tinsel in it. It's got a watermark. It's got a serial number. And this is how we've made it a, a, a value tender. If you, if I give you 10 rand and it's got all those things, you take it and say, okay, I'm happy with the 10 rand. We need to do that with mobile or digital money as well. Can you give an example of that? Where, if we think forward five or six years, maybe a bit longer, what could this, you know, mobile finance world look like? What would end consumers um, actually be doing with their mobile phones on a day-to-day basis? Well, ideally, you can actually, it's almost a little bit about like Bitcoin, I suppose, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in time. But the point is, is that I can actually use a digital token to simulate exactly what a um, you know dollar bill or a rand bill actually does. And it's instant settlement. And that's the most important thing, is that if I give you one Bitcoin, you're happy to take it because you know you can use it somewhere else immediately to go and buy something. And there's obviously lots of things that come out of it because as soon as you've got rid of that, that friction, the speed and the velocity of, of um, you know, money speeds up and you can do all sorts of things off the back of it, insurance, uh, banking, lending, and uh, you remove this glass ceiling. If you ever look at what's happening in mobile money in, in Africa, which is the global leader in Africa, and we can sort of un- unpack why Africa has been so important, but it's largely because of the high unbanked population. You know, people are able to get short-term loans. Interesting, if you have a look at that, um, even someone who's at the market in the Lusaka market or in the Kenyan market, they can go and sit at their stall. And, and you know, sometimes those stalls, it's first come, first service. So you haven't got someone to look after your goods if you run out of cash or you need cash or you need something. You can actually go on your mobile phone, borrow money, and you don't have to move from your store, you can continue selling. And uh, at the end of the day, when you're walking home and you go past you know, one of the outlets, you can actually then repay that loan. And it's just the convenience of it. Uh, if you think about how difficult it is to get a loan today, and yet 
millions of people are getting these loans just over their, their phone, just with a little bit of data um, about themselves. It's, it's, a, it's a game changer. I agree. I think it is a game changer. And, and we're already seeing the game being changed in other parts of the world. I mean, we'll be chatting about China a little bit later when Ron comes on. But if I think about the China story there where you've seen a billion or more people start to get into mobile finance on platforms like uh, WeChat's WePay and Alipay, really super easy, QR codes with every single merchant. It doesn't matter whether they're a supermarket or whether they're a vendor on the side of the street. People are 100% comfortable to go and use these Uber apps, these super apps, to do everything from you know, watching poodles, ordering their takeaways, paying in advance when they're going to restaurants, taking out micro loans, using artificial intelligence to study your interaction with the phone and then using AI and technology to actually make estimates about what your credit worthiness is instead of those really boring standard old fashioned bank scorecards. Uh, instant loans, peer to peer, near field technology for transfers, transfers of air miles, into different currencies or different types of uh, currency, virtual or otherwise, to go and make payments. And we'll come on to Bitcoin in a minute. So across other parts of the world, you're seeing huge adoption. China is probably the best example. Here in Africa, we've got M-Pesa, obviously, and we can chat about that, where for, what is it now, a decade, you've seen this massive adoption. South Africa, we're not seeing very much. My sense is we haven't seen that rate of adoption, if any, which suggests there's some barriers and impediments for this to actually go and work in a similar manner is what are those barriers? Well, firstly, you know, in, if, if, if you have a look outside South Africa, you've got Orange Money, you've got uh, MTN, Mobile Money or Momo, as they call it, and you've got Impesa. And so you've got this massive ecosystem of, you know, people using this currency. And you can, you know, call it a different type of currency, but people are using it, it's accepted tender, and you can cash in and cash out. I mean, unfortunately, mobile money, when it started, was very much just a remittance you know, mechanism. People come to the city, they earn cash, and they want to just you know, send it home. So they'd send it out to the rural villages, and their granny or mommy would get the money on their phone, but then they'd have to go and cash it out. And so the mobile operators became the new G4S of uh, Africa because they were continually moving cash from the city to rural. And then they realized that you needed an ecosystem and you needed it to be legal tender. So you could actually, you didn't have to cash in and cash out. You could, you know, once your money was in, you could stay in there and you could actually go and buy things at merchants. You could pay school fees, electricity, prepaid, etc. And once that happened, the whole ecosystem just exploded because then um, it you know, it wasn't just a remittance system. It was actually real cash. It was better than cash. It was secure. And uh, you could get all sorts of services. That, and we must come back to that because there's some really interesting case studies on how people behave, especially merchants. In South Africa, unfortunately, every time they've launched mobile money so far, they've had a card attached to it. And the reason why you had to have a card attached to it because it's how the South African regs work and obviously that card is, you know, very expensive. It needs to be made, it needs to be delivered, it needs to have uh, security embedded, but you get caught up in the same, you know, problem. Settlement takes time. I know when Impesa started, we were at Barclays Africa or Absa Africa CIB now, and if you remember, we, had, we were doing that uh, Barclays Virtual Bank, which was banking over WhatsApp. And so my daughter went off to boarding school and I thought, let me try 
this new product. So we actually got her an Impesa account. Very easy to get the account. Uh, the problem was is every time I moved money from my EBSA account into a card, it took between 24 and 48 hours. So if she needed money, you couldn't give it to her straight away. It took time. So it was actually easier for me to give her an EBSA card and because then I could transfer it because it was you know within the bank. The second thing was that if you wanted to do a um, balance uh, check, I think they charged you one rand fifty, which is just extortionate if you think about if you're really trying to do the bottom of the pyramid, you know, LSM one, two, three, and four. And this is the fundamental problem. As soon as you make it expensive, all you're doing is you're competing with the existing banks. The whole idea of mobile money is to bring more people into the ecosystem. And what's important here is when it happened in uh, Kenya, the banks were very much against it because they thought they were going to get disrupted and it was going to really take value away from them. But exactly what happened with mobile phones happened in mobile money. It actually created a bigger banking sector because more people got included. There was more payments going backwards and forwards and actually the banks have done better. In South Africa, the regulations at the moment are not friendly towards mobile money and the banks or for part of the, the payment system have the ability to block you uh, because you have to find a bank with a license to actually be your sponsor bank. And this is why it hasn't really happened. And unfortunately, that you know, does really limit the social inclusion and financial inclusion. And obviously in our society, given our history, this is really, really important. You see the regulators changing. I know National Treasury produced a paper, I think it was last year, on inclusive banking. So there are some discussions ongoing. I know uh, Bartha have been heavily involved. I interviewed uh, one of the guys from Bartha a week or so back to talk about this. It felt a bit odd talking to someone, though, who represents the banks to talk about inclusive banking, which really needs to move the model of banking to something which is free, free for your account, free for transactions at the very least. And then obviously with the Saab and the regulators sitting on top, worried about issues around fraud and anti-bribery and corruption and other issues. Can you see them making any progress on this or will they be talking about it for the for the next decade or so? Yeah, I, listen, they have made progress. I've had some discussions with them and they're trying to do as a first step is to get instant settlement between banks at BankServe. So you don't have this 24, 48 hour lag. You can actually do instant settlement and it's, it's actually not difficult they do it in Nigeria already. It just needs to be a credit model. So you don't have this settlement at the end of the day, as you know, that they do at the moment. So that'll be the, the first step. The, the, the issue with it is once you get into digital currency and you're not issuing fiat currency, you need to be able to settle that in Forex and all sorts of things. So it's, it's a little bit more complicated. What it has to be to get it adopted is it has to be free. Payments need to be free then. And this is the problem. Once you get in the banking system, you're paying a lot for all your, your payments. You know, if, if, if it's on a card, it's somewhere between, you know, half and I think 5%. I don't know what it is these days. It's very expensive because of the credit risk around it. And this is part of the problem is if you, if I gave you a 10 rand note and, you know, someone tore off the corner because that was the cost of the transaction, eventually that 10 rand disappears. You know, today, if I give you 10 rand, you don't tear anything off. It's just, it's a free payment. The actual economy, you know, pays this 23 billion of fraud of, you know, printing notes and, you know, all the, the security. And so we need to get to a point where payments are free. This means a fundamental change in how the banks 
charge for their services. This does mean you have to reconstruct back to pay for service. It's a bit like if you think about it in the old days, if you wanted to go overseas, you would go and ask your local bank manager to get you a thousand dollars in notes, and then he'd put in the request, they'd collect it wherever it came from, they'd deliver it to the branch, you'd then walk in, you'd sign all the forms, you'd you know, take your cash and you'd go overseas, but they'd charge you like 10% for that or 5% because it was an expensive exercise. Today, you don't even bother. You don't take notes with you because you can you know, pay on your phone, you can pay with your credit card, it's all instant settles behind the bank, but you'll see they still charge you a huge fee when they do that Forex transaction for a retail customer. And that needs to change because there should be you know, very small margins on, you know, on that. And um, this is going to fundamentally change the service offering and how you know, banks make money. And this is what digitization is doing. If you offer me a service and you give me a service, I'm happy to pay for it. But don't charge me for something that shouldn't cost anything like an electronic payment. Let's assume that a um, clever bunch of entrepreneurs, because I think it sounds like we need some clever entrepreneurs to get around some of these issues. It doesn't feel like the incumbents are necessarily going to be uh, focused on this for lots of different reasons. And they come up and they say, we're going we're gonna to mimic a WeChat. So we're going to basically have a big pooled funds. However, people get their money, whether they pay it in with cash at a Spaza or they do have a bank account and, and draw the money in to, to create a little wallet. And we're going to give them these virtual rand, which is really just moving across the ledger in this single Uber account. Um, and it's now frictionless. It's now free. They can actually go and start using it. Would you expect there to be quite a large pickup if someone offered that type of service? Well, once again, it needs to be a big take up of it. If you ever look at all these mobile you know, systems, they are very exponential in how they work. Because in the beginning, if if, if it's only you and me who adopt digital currency, then only you and me can, you know, pay each other. So you need people to adopt that. If you saw what India did to make people adopt digital currency, they took all the low uh, denomination notes out of the economy, just one day, boom, gone. So uh, you couldn't pay with anything else. You had to pay with mobile money and, and that created adoption. In, you know, places like Kenya where Mpeza took off, it just became um, the de facto easier way of you know transacting, and the regulator was quite open in the beginning to let it run before they you know started actually regulating it, and that allowed it to get you know critical mass. So the thing here, really, from my experience at MTN, was it really took off when we got the merchants involved. So that mm-hmm. if you go to pick and pay, if you go to the street corner you can actually pay with with mobile money so that uh, digital currency you've got is accepted tender everywhere and once you get that then it will definitely take off i mean just to give you an example either in sudan or south sudan because of the security what they do is before they go home they go to mobile money they take their cash they put it into mobile money they then break their sim card throw it away travel home so that no one can steal it from them get home they then go and do a SIM swap, get their mobile money back, and then they can transact. That's, that's the yeah, yeah, that's the security of it. And you you think about it, people use it when they, they need it. You'll see car guards in Kenya and in U- Uganda, when they get tips, they immediately go and cash it in 
and put it in mobile money because no one can steal that from them. Yeah. But, so but um, it's, also, it's a bit of a trust issue here as well. I mean, which question do I ask first? In some ways, it sounds a little bit like that the uh, telcos have got the advantage here, but it also feels like there's a big trust issue for your average South African because they, they've been brought up over the last decade with an impression which I think is based on fact that data charges are incredibly expensive in South Africa. And they've had the issue where they feel like they're losing their data. They're paying for stuff which they don't get to utilize. Certainly, historically, they'd have the end of month. If you haven't used it, you've lost your data or you'd be forced into long-term contracts. I know some of those things have changed and obviously you have to price up at a relatively high level. It's getting looked at year in, year out to go and, and try and change it. But the point is they don't trust the data providers. They don't trust the banks because they see them as being quite expensive. They see that um, it's not necessarily that they don't trust the banking system. They look at it and they go, well, I've had my credit card cloned and scammed a couple of times now and they've wiped out my account. So when you walk around at the end of a month, you see large queues of people at the post office or at banks just withdrawing all of their money. They actually should have a button on the ATM that just says withdraw all cash. Maybe they've they've done that because that's what 99% of people do. And they feel safer with the cash because it works for them. And so, so my feeling is that there's quite a, a trust issue that's going to have to be overcome if you want the adoption, even if you start making it freer and easier for people to get access to. But I think you need to remove the friction. There's a huge cost to money. Uh, if you think about it, you know, you, there's always some cash sitting in your account. If you go and have a look at your check account, if you get one or 2% interest on that, you, you know, doing well, um, you physically have to move it into a money market or, you know, a special account. And 90% of people don't do that or don't have enough to do it. And so the difference between what I get paid for my lazy deposits and what sits in the, you know, that um, the bank then can lend that money out at is, is huge. In South Africa, it's anywhere between three and 8%. And so this is what uh, and, and Financial did. They went and said, okay, if, if you leave your money in, we're going to give you a return. And they went and invested it in, you know, money market uh, bonds. And so they took a small percentage for doing it, but then everyone got, even on a small amount, got paid out so suddenly there's there's trust because you're not you know you're not getting fleeced your money is actually working for you so you say okay i'm happy to leave my money there because i'm getting the best return i could have got anyway the second thing is also the cost of transactions is how if you get rid of that you know people will start saying well it's it's like cash but it's secure and i get a return therefore i want to do it and this is what you have to create what really also got mobile money going was just this ability to uh, do, um, you know, to borrow money. And a lot of it is around convenience. People go, oh, you know, you're going to lend people money and they're going to run away. You're ne never going to get it back. Nearly 90% of lending on, on mobile platforms is short term. It's convenience. As I spoke about earlier about the, the vendor and the market can't get up and leave their stall because someone will steal their goods while they're not there. They can't close it up and take it with them because then someone takes their spot. So they need something for that, you know, six hours or whatever, and they'll, they'll pay it when they, they go home. If you have a look at uh, just an MTN on uh, airtime lending, they've got three rand, six rand, nine rand, 12 rand, I think might have changed since I left, but something like 80% is in the three rand and the six rand. 
because people know it's expensive. They know they're paying one rand, uh, whether it's three rand or it's uh, 12 rand, you're paying a one rand fee. The issue is, is they need to make a phone call then. So they're happy to pay that three rand or 12 rand and then, you know, top up later. And so this convenience is what really makes mobile money very, very interesting. What drove it in Kenya, in Peza, was the average distance to a bank was about 14 kilometers. And if you think about someone with no car or has to get in a bus, that's going to cost them to do the 14 kilometers. What mobile money did with all their agents, they moved that to within one kilometer. Most people can get within one kilometer and therefore mm. it became convinced. They removed a big piece of friction that the banks couldn't move. And this is why it got adopted. And this is what you have to do to actually get it organized. Back to what you said earlier, you also need that network effect where everyone starts to accept it and transact it to move off of cash because people but aren't going to analyze it. You know, in, in theory, it's going to be, a, you know, it's just a wake up and what feels natural and what practical, what's efficient and frictionless. One of the groups that could make a huge dent on this would be the taxi industry, you know, because you've got 200,000 plus taxis. Well, pre-COVID, at least you were seeing 15, 20 million people being driven around South Africa on a daily basis. It strikes me that the taxi industry aren't going to be the first industry to necessarily want to adopt digital currencies. Is that unfair on the taxi industry? Well, the reality is, is that, you know, our system in South Africa or in the world has been driven off the back of hard cash. So everything we do, if you think about it, you go into a shop, you pay cash, they must ring it up in the till. Then at the end of the month, they have a look at, you know, how much they made. Then you pay the tax to the receiver of revenue because it's a physical note. If you use mobile money, you can pay tax at source. Just think about 15% VAT. If I come and I buy a loaf of bread from you, and I use mobile money, only 85% goes to the merchant, 15% of it immediately goes to the fiscus. What that does is obviously creates velocity of money, but it takes a lot of time, cost and effort out of someone having to do a tax return because they really paid the tax, the VAT's gone. When they bought the goods, they paid the VAT immediately, it went to receiver. So you don't have to have this whole revenue collection audit, check, filling out of forms, getting them signed off, getting them, you know, et cetera, just all becomes automatic. And so if you think about the, the taxi industry at the moment, they pay tax already. They pay VAT every time they buy something. They pay a fuel, fuel levy. They pay when they buy their car. They pay when they buy tires, et cetera. So you just need to change the tax system. But the ability for people to then pay for taxis with, you know, digital takes a whole lot of cost out of that industry, firstly. Secondly, you've then got data that's real data because, um, and you can see exactly how many passengers are going on that taxi every day. You can mm -hmm. see how much they're paying. You can see how much fuel and how far the person is, um, you know, driving. To give them a loan to buy tires, to fix their car, to buy a new car, suddenly is an easy decision because it's real. It's non-temperable. And so you can see the benefits that will come. I mean, we did an experiment with mobile money at MTN where we said to the spaza shops and that is we will lend them money based on a percentage of their turnover. 
but their turnover had to be in mobile money. So the first thing that happened was when someone came into the shop, wanted to buy something, the guy said to him, no, 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 swap it into mobile money first and then buy, buy it because I know I can get X percent of that back in a loan, firstly. Secondly, for the lender, the risk has changed because it's digital cash that comes into an MTN system. You have got control over the cash. So you can say to them, okay, I'll risk share with you. I'm going to take, you know, pick a number, 10% of your turnover every day, and it's going to pay your loan down. So if you have a good day, I take more. If you have a bad day, I take less. And if you don't work, I take naught. You think about the current banking system today. They don't care whether you're working or not. You still have to pay your installment because it's a fixed installment every month. It's got nothing to do with the ebbs and flows. So all of a sudden, you've got an enterprise who says, I really want to partner with MTN because, first of all, they're going to give me cash. They're going to help me expand my business. But secondly, they're risk sharing with me. But if you think about it from an MTN perspective, the risk is actually less because you know exactly what the guy sold for the last you know, five years, firstly. Secondly, you control the money so you can take your piece every time. And thirdly, you can expand his business with him because he's trying to get you know, more and more mobile money transactions into his system. So it fundamentally changes the credit model, the risk model, and your ability to actually help people grow their businesses. I mean, look, if we wait for the banks, I mean, the banks for mobile money at a, at a LS123 level are going to have to basically make their services available for free. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Data providers are going to have to drive down data costs, so the, the telcos, basically. But there are other solutions that are coming through. I mean, for example, you mentioned crypto and Bitcoin um, as one path. Um, there's a company at the moment in South Africa that's doing well, Moya App, which has offered an Android service with advertising, which pays for the data to give people uh, free access to various you know, types of services. Do you see one or a collection of these basically just bypassing, jumping over the incumbents in the same way we saw Uber jump over the taxi industry? Yes, I do at some point. I mean, it's going to depend on regulations, uh, but it certainly has happened. But I don't see it as being either or. It's as complementary too. You know, there's always going to be people like you and me who want some kind of a banking service because we want more. You know, we want investments, we want other stuff. But the general population, all they want is a measure to transact, ability to borrow, and ability to save. And then you can add you know, services around it. If you have a look at the friction in the payment system and the lending system, there's enough there to give you free data, to give you, you know, just getting interest on your lazy balances instead of as soon as you get paid, going and drawing it all out. Um, your ability to access credit, just the efficiency, the time of not having to go to a branch, the petrol you pay to go there, et cetera. There's enough friction in that system to allow you to have free payments and free data. But then you need to have a suite of services. I mean, when I was at um, M10, we did a deal with uh, Sunlum on funeral insurance where because we were taking out the delivery cost of actually getting that funeral policy in a sold to a person paid, you could actually get 50% of your premium back in data. And so effectively, you, you're sort of getting half price insurance. I mean, that's huge. 
And so this is really what needs to happen to really get it adopted. It will fundamentally equal out society a lot more. And we know, I mean, if, if you think about the, the old GSM model, I think uh, Vodacom, their first business plan was that maximum 800,000 users would be on the mobile network because they saw it as a postpaid rich man's thing because the handsets were expensive and that. But then MTN came along and realized that actually when you're at work, you want to phone your gardener, your domestic, your whoever. Um, so the more people that are on the network, the more people you've got to phone, the more people you and I are going to spend money on phoning. And then they realized that, well, there's a, there's a prepaid thing where there's no risk. If people prepay for a bit of airtime, they pay up front and I've got no credit risk. It's almost like, you know, supermarket model. And it fundamentally changed. And all of a sudden, you, you know, today, I mean, people have got four or five SIMs and there's um, far more adoption of mobile phones than there has been of banking products in a much shorter space of time. And that's what's really um, exponentialized it and democratized it in a way. There's quite a good question here from uh, Nicola Columbine here on the uh, infrastructure side of things. I mean, she talks about transport systems, but that's broadening. What infrastructure do you perceive that we need for transport systems or basically for mobile money in general across all of the major services that people want? Is, this a, is it a significant amount of infrastructure and technology and spend if you want to go and solve for Praza or solve for the taxi mm -hmm. minibus industry or for the Sparza industry, for example? No, it's not. I mean, you just have a look. I mean, there's there's lots of these, um, you know, payment gateways and acquiring out there. I mean, you've got, uh, there's one called Flash Trading. I think it's got 130,000 outlets already in South Africa. And, you know, they sell coupons for prepaid electricity, water. They sell lotto tickets. They do, you know, the, the infra infrastructure is there, but um, it just operates over the mobile network. And so um, there is a bit of a cost getting a, an acquiring machine out there, but you've seen people like Yoko totally disrupt that, make it very cheap and able for, you know, for one to um, actually go and buy one. I was actually in a credible connection two days ago and I see they, they're now selling them out of an incredible connection. So all of a sudden you can go and I know you can actually order one on takealot.com. It'll, you know, deliver to you. So, the infrastructure is there. You just need to, you know, get the ability for it to, you know, happen within the regs and, um, you know, be a lot broader. I mean, we've seen it in many countries. I mean, I, I was just having a look at the stats from a GSMA. In 2019, there were nearly 24 billion transactions worth $458 billion in sub-Saharan Africa alone. And there's 469 million mobile users, registered mobile users across Africa. And, and so it definitely works, there's no doubt. And you can have a look at the lending that's going on, the, the convenience uh, for people. Unfortunately, we often look at it through our eyes and we're the sort of top, you know, 10 or 15%. We've got cars, we can drive to Nickelway and go to, you know, the bank if we want to. But if the gardener, you've got to, you know, get dressed, walk down the road, wait for a taxi, get in a taxi, pay for the trip, go there and your transaction's probably going to be two or 300 rand. So you've just spent 20 or 40 rand for 
you know, a 200 rand transaction. And this is the yeah. problem. This is why it's so important. And so we need to not see it through our eyes. You need to see it through LSM one to four hours. Very, very different for them. And this is why you've seen this mass adoption across Africa. Great one here from uh, Anton, Anton Musgrave. I know you know Anton. What would it take for an incumbent to disrupt all the profit inherent in the current system friction? Do you know a courageous incumbent bank CEO? <laughs> is the there someone is, courageous enough who's going to go for yeah. this target market of zero fees, zero friction, and potentially take away a lot of margin they get currently? Yeah, the problem is, is that the way capitalism works is if you're the incumbent, you're not um, incentivized to disrupt yourself. So when you get into that job, you're paying, being paid a lot of money. Why do you want to disrupt yourself and make your life difficult? You know, you work 20 years to get into that position. And so this is the problem with capitalism. This is the problem with the way it works. And this is why we're seeing these businesses grow up out of people's garages because they've got nothing to lose. They've only got something to win. And I do think there needs to be a fundamental change. I was um, having a chat with uh, Petuma and Lerko, the original CEO of uh, MTN, just about some of this. You know, if you have a look at SME funding, you know, there's something like a shortfall of 430 billion in SME funding requirement in South Africa, but we've done nothing to make the banks actually provide that. And there are ways to do it. You know, you could take 10% of all their dividends that went into an SME fund that uh, then didn't affect their capital ratios, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have to get into it. But it's the same with mobile companies. I don't understand if data is so game-changing and it is, and Spectrum's a national asset. It's like, you know, getting platinum or, or gold rights or, you know, coal rights. These are national assets. If Spectrum's a national asset, we've managed to give people, I think, six kilolitres of water free and a certain amount of electricity free because we saw that as a basic need. Well, if data is a basic need, why are we not giving Spectrum to the incumbents? It's not like we're going to get new ones coming. Um, and saying to them, you have to give everyone the first 500 megabytes free. You know, that's the, the cost. Why can't we do that? Because it's a game changer. And so and just to um, Anton's, you know, to answer Anton's question, is we need a fundamentally different way to think about what we're trying to achieve. And that can only come from the government. I see Nazir, who was at uh, MTN with me, is you know asking the, the question about you know overregulation you know and got broken up. Well, the problem is is that even in China they left that disruption to the private sector. Really, what you need, Anton, is you need um, a very very courageous incumbent uh, reserve bank governor who says we're going to do this the disruption in the market because it's good for the economy. It's a bit what the, the Indian government did. So let us create the end financial system or the MPESA system within South Africa that allows everyone to you know, operate uh, on it. And we'll own that system, we'll regulate it, we'll make sure that it works and we can add all the bells and whistles to it. Then you've got a fundamental change. And that for me is the radical economic transformational things we can do. And so this is what... Uh, you know, I think I've, I've written a few columns on it, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, it does seem strange because the benefits of mobile finance really, at least from my perspective, it feels like it really helps 
those that are unbanked, underbanked, who are earning limited little amounts of money, the underemployed, if you're living outside of the big cities, this is where you could see some real benefits. There's bizarre in some ways that we're not seeing policies being driven through to, to force at least certain sets of data for people. If it's educational data, it should be free. If it's mobile finance related data, it should be free. The technology is there, but we're not seeing that coming through. No, exactly right. And I think this is why you have to rethink with the clean sheet of paper. I mean, there was a question here, as you know, how competitive is the mobile payment landscape? You know, it would be a problem of a monopoly. But, you know, if you think about it today, what, what does the Reserve Bank do? They take all the costs of printing money, making sure it's secure, it's got the watermark, it's special paper, it gets distributed, etc. That's a huge cost. The banks actually take a lot of cost of, you know, collecting and, and delivering money and then charge the consumer in whether it's um, ATM fees or that. So what you want to do is you want to create a central payment system that's digitized, and then you allow innovation off, off the edge of it, and you allow competition around insurance products, lending products, payment products, you know, um, and that's what, you know, creates it. But you have to think about what the core is. And the core is just the payment, the ability for me to give someone 10 Rand electronically and use it immediately. And so this is what we have to create. That is the fundamental game changer. And, you know, it has to have, you know, value at the back of it and it needs to be open to all people. So it needs to work on USSD. It used to, you know, needs to work on a mobile phone and then let, let people compete around, you know, adding services. This is what Apple did with their smartphone. All they did was create the basic platform. They haven't created all the use cases around it. Other people have come and said, okay, you've created a great platform. I'm going to actually you know, innovate around it. And what's interesting about um, the Apple smartphone, there was nothing new in that. The newest technology sitting in an Apple smartphone, the first one that came out, was the GSM technology. All the touchscreen and everything else wasn't already available. Someone just put the platform together. And I think we're in a you know, position with things like um, a Bitcoin you know, now working, Ethereum that sits on top of that. Um, we've got the technology now that you can actually create this, um, you know, payments platform for a central economy, and that can be a fundamental game changer. Yeah, you said Bitcoin at the start, and we can't really do a conversation without Bitcoin. I mean, you've got so many players. I think there's last count two and a half, three thousand different cryptocurrencies that people are aware of that haven't been uh, that are actually released in the wild and not sitting in someone's garage or. Do you think we're going to start to see more adoption in South Africa from a not just an investment, you know, or a, a hedge or a bet, but actually transactional wise with crypto from Ethereum or Bitcoin or Dogecoin or the thousands of others that are out there? Yeah, I do think, you know, the, the beauty about this um, crypto or tokenization or something is it means that you can sell anything or you can value anything. For example, if you had a crypto exchange, I could actually take my house, I could break it up into a zillion units, and I could issue a crypto coin against the value of my house, and I could finance it by selling those, those coins. Um, obviously, there's an interest to be paid, so I could effectively get a mortgage, a non-bank mortgage, using a cryptocurrency, but it's tradable. So you can invest in it, you can invest out of it. The problem with Bitcoin at the moment is it's really driven by supply and demand. 
And I personally, um, the technology is great and what they're doing with it, I think on, on top of it with urethium and everything where they're actually creating these smart contracts and that is exactly what's going to happen in the future. There's no doubt in my mind. The problem with Bitcoin is, that, as you know, it's very volatile and um, you don't want something that's very volatile. This is why people have moved to, you know, around the world where you've had a volatile currency like the Zimbabwean dollar. You eventually, people don't use it. They actually trade in US dollars or rands or a currency that's more stable. So I think the technology and everything that's happening there is exactly what's going to happen. But I think it will happen with currencies that have a backing of value. And so when you get a token, you know what more or less what that value is. What about targeting the SASA grant beneficiaries? I mean, that's 18 million people that you could digitize immediately if you had the, the kind of wherewithal to actually start pushing that out. No, absolutely. I mean, and this is what Mark Barnes was trying to do with Postbank. And this is why I think the government fundamentally misunderstood what the asset of the post office was. The post office asset was 4,000 branches that people use every single day. And if you could give a different product to them, you could actually monetize it and you know make money. But if you think about the cost of delivering those SASA grants, it's astronomical. And I think you could do it with um, mobile money with one-tenth of the cost for sure. And that would pay for your whole payment system. I mean, I think it's costing them something like 400 million rand a month times that by 12, it's a huge amount of money. Imagine if you had 4.8 billion rand, 5 billion rand a year just to run a payment system. I think you could do it quite easily. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.